Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Companies pay big money, don't they, to design teams to come up with a logo that will people automatically associate with a product, right? So they, they create a logo and they, they want people to go, yeah, I want that. So what does this logo make you think of? Yeah, it makes you think about wearing really cool shoes, running really fast, jumping really high, dunking, all that kind of stuff, right? It makes you feel really good about yourself. How about this logo? Yeah, most of you love it. Maybe a few of you don't. I don't know. We'll find out. But you know, we'll convert you if you have if you don't love it. I'm a I'm an Apple guy. Yeah, actually, they did a study on this. It's kind of funny. I don't know why they do studies on stuff like this, but they did a study on this, saying that anybody at an unconscious level they noticed that people who saw this were automatically more creative than people who saw the IBM logo. Well, maybe that was a joke. I don't know. But <laughs> one more. Mercedes Benz. For many people, this logo is a sign of status. A car ad a few years back said, you can't buy happiness, but now you can lease it. And then they showed a picture of Mercedes. I bring this all up because I want you to think, does Christianity have a logo? For over 2,000 years now, the simplest expression of our faith has been a cross. The clearest, most remembers, most widely recognized symbol of what Christian faith stands for is two pieces of wood stuck together on which criminals were executed. Think about that. An instrument of death is our corporate logo. Why is that? I mean, the other logos convey messages of power, success, attractiveness, beauty. What does the cross proclaim? What does it really mean for us? Before we go any further on that, we've been in this series called One Big Story this year, going cover to cover in the Bible. We're spending the whole year on it. Uh, we just felt like it was really important, especially in light of the fact that most American studies say don't, these are real studies, <laughs> say don't actually know what the Bible teaches. Even a lot of people in the pews don't know what the Bible actually teaches. So we've been trying to remedy that by going cover to cover one big story. The last few weeks we've been spending time in Jesus' ministry. After years of Jesus' extraordinary teachings and actions, they led him to the cross. And along the way, we see Judas betray him, one of his closest followers. Jesus was arrested, and he was put through several mock trials between Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin. And even Pilate couldn't figure out what the problem was with Jesus. I mean, he said, Jesus is innocent. He tries to get him released, and the crowds chant, crucify him all the more. So he started, gets to the point where he realizes he can't get anywhere, so he thinks... Well, maybe if I just punish Jesus enough, if I flog him with this leather whip that has metal balls and shards of glass and sharp pieces of metal in it embedded into it, which is designed to rip the flesh off, and maybe if I do that, that'll be enough. And that's not enough, and the crowd still want to crucify Jesus. And so Pilate washes his hands of it all and relents, handing Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus' focus in that moment was so resolute through all the torture, the mocking, Jesus doesn't think these people, they're just not worth it. He doesn't go there. Jesus was so focused on the eternal that he endured the cross for us to reconcile the people of his creation back to himself. 
So let's jump actually into the text in Mark 15. We're going to jump back in and out of the text today. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's about noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, however you want to say that. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing that said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah actually shows up and takes him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Multiple witnesses would have been around hearing him say this. The cross, the manner of Jesus' death is central to the gospel. Jesus' crucifixion is not a secondary theme in the Bible. It is the core. This one big story led us last week to one big question. This week, this one big story leads us to this one big event. In fact, the English word crucial actually comes from the Latin word for cross, crux, which reminds us that the crucial accomplishment of Christ occurred on those beams of the cross are central to our faith. If you read the biography of any famous person, even if their death was a prominent story like, uh, like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr., if you read about their life, you see that their death, even though it was by assassination, is only a tiny part of their biography. But with Jesus, it's different. Within a few decades of Jesus' death and life, there were four biographies written about him. The story of his death actually takes up a disproportionate amount of those gospel stories, about one-third of each of the biographies. These gospel writers understood the centrality of what happened on that day on the cross. And much of the world does too, because for 2,000 years, Jesus' death has been the most remembered death in all of history. Now, normally when someone dies, their impact on the world begins to quickly diminish. But Jesus' impact on the world continues to actually gain momentum. Today, after 2,000 years, he has more followers than ever. Everything in Jesus' life led up to the cross. Paul actually says it this way. He says he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, the entire scripture and all of history has been pointing to this event. God said to Satan in Genesis 3 that he would crush his head. All the way then we go forward to Abraham and, and God said he would bless all nations through a descendant of Abraham and all the judges and all the kings and all the prophets and all that they've said is now complete by what Jesus does in the cross and the resurrection, that event, those events of one weekend. And when Jesus took his last breath, the earth itself shifted and caused an earthquake. The curtain of the temple that had been separating God from the people was now torn in two. God is no longer restricting himself to one place or to one people group. He is the God of all. It's important to note that Jesus' crucifixion was not something done to Jesus but it was something done by him. Jesus says it this way. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus could have called millions of angels to his defense, but he chose not to. He willingly gave his life. 
He allowed soldiers to beat him and to nail him to the cross. Jesus was not a defenseless victim. Jesus' death was necessary. His death was the core of God's foreordained plan. Plan. Revelation 13 says it this way, Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. In his sermon at Pentecost Sunday, Peter says it this way, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by your hands, by the hands of lawless men. In Matthew 20, Jesus says pointedly, he told his disciples what was about to happen. Let me just summarize that. He says, he basically says, listen guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be turned over to the leading religious authorities and they will want him to die. They will give the Son of Man to the Romans, uh, people to laugh at him and beat him and whip him and crucify him. But on the third day, he'll be raised to life again. See, Jesus wasn't trapped by the religious leaders. Jesus wasn't surprised that he was arrested and crucified. No, Jesus died on purpose. The way Jesus faced his death, the way he had such resolution, leaves no doubt that he knew he had come to earth for this moment. So, why crucifixion? I mean, we've all heard that crucifixion is known to have been the most terrible, cruel death ever devised by humanity. Why would God choose to allow his son to die at this time in this way? And it was so horrific that it was illegal, illegal for the Roman citizen to be crucified. Romans used crucifixion extensively on their enemies. To maximize pain, the agony could drag on for days. And second, crucifixion was a way to maximize public humiliation. It was a way that the Romans sent a message to all who saw the crosses that anyone who dared to go against the power of Rome, and they would, Rome, they would be left hanging in humiliation for all to see. The beatings before the crucifixion were horrific, but they weren't, they weren't enough to cause the man to die before the cross. He would then carry the cross through the town to the place of execution where his body would be, have spikes driven through the hands and the feet to keep him on the cross, fully having to place his weight upon his feet with the spikes in order to even be able to breathe. I mean, death by blood loss or suffocation could take hours. In some instances, it took days. Yet as Jesus hung there, looking down on the soldiers and all of that pain, what does he do? He prays and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. I mean, despite the brutal physical suffering Jesus endured, the Gospels say actually very little about the details of the experience while Jesus on the cross is on the cross. I mean, the Gospel of Mark just simply says, and they crucified him. I mean, one reason why very little is said about Jesus' physical suffering is because they knew the deepest, most significant suffering Jesus went through was the spiritual suffering. He was a man who knew no sin never experienced guilt or a moment of shame, never had a regret of, over his choices. Jesus, in that state, became sin for us, Scripture tells us. Just think of the worst thing you've ever done. Think of your most ashamed moment in all of your life. If that flashed on the screen for all to see, it would cause you humiliation, right? 
Maybe it was breaking a marital vow. Maybe it was keeping something secret. Maybe it was just doing something that you just knew you absolutely shouldn't have done. You hurt somebody. You hurt yourself so badly. Take that sense of shame and pain over doing what you did. The last thing that you, that thing that you wish you could undo the most in this life. Now imagine for a moment experiencing the weight of that sin again and the countless other sins you've committed. And add to that the destructiveness of of every sin ever committed by every fallen person from the beginning of time. Every act of physical abuse, you feel it fully. Every selfish act, every greedy business deal, every sacrifice of integrity, every murder, every deception, every sexually trafficked young child, the Holocaust, the, the, in, in Germany, in, in, under Stalin's reign, in Rwanda, and Cambodia, and Syria, you feel it all. Imagine the horror and despair of that sin in one heart, in Jesus' heart, the only pure heart that has ever existed. Jesus let God direct all of his righteous anger, all of his judgment toward him. The description of that seems to be worse than any description, any conception of hell ever written to me. Jesus, who had only known perfect intimacy with his father, who had never felt distance from God, is now hanging on the cross with all of that shame and burden and emotion and feeling and pressure and... He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, to feel that kind of abandonment and aloneness would overshadow even the most intense aspects of physical torture. Jesus suffered for us so that we could receive salvation, the healing and forgiveness that we could never earn, the rightness that we could never attain to. And Jesus' last words say, it is finished. It means he brought it to completion. Jesus didn't just start a work, he finished. He completely paid our debt for every shame we've ever felt. For some, when they think of the cross, they still see Jesus suspended there. It's a sacred and powerful image, uh, no doubt, But that's not our focus. Because if Jesus had been left on the cross, what would we have? We'd just have another martyr. Instead, he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. And there are numerous implications for us from the cross and the resurrection, this one big eventful weekend. I mean, the cross reveals the unlimited love of God to us. As Romans 5 says it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in the way he did to show us the extent of how far God's love would go to reach each and every single one of us on this planet. The second major implication of the cross and resurrection is Jesus was sent to earth to die for our sins in our place. And as a result, every single person has access to God and Jesus. Every person on the planet can receive mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or what you think about yourself. That is available to you. 
Now, for those of us in church, even a lot of many people outside of the church who are familiar with the story, you may ask a family or a co-worker who doesn't go to church and ask them what is Christianity about, and they'd likely say it has something to do with Jesus being going to a cross and being raised from the dead. But I think sometimes that becomes so familiar to us that it tends to lose its power and significance. So let me attempt to help us gain a little more of that today by using our imaginations again and thinking for a little while here, what was it like for Jesus' closest followers to see him killed? Let's put ourselves in their place. This was not the first crucifixion the disciples had seen before. They'd seen numerous uh, slaves and criminals and innocent people die in this way. And in this moment, what's going on in their minds as they watch Jesus die? I mean, let's get back to the text and then we'll reflect on this some more. It says, There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone over the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tombs. So the picture is there were lots of his disciples, lots of his people around watching this. The women never left his body ever until it was in the tomb. So, and, and then here's a disciple of Jesus, this rich, wealthy person who decides to use his wealth to honor Jesus. I mean, normally crucified people would be left up there to rot and be picked apart by the crows and the ravens. Joseph asks Pilate for Jesus' body. I mean, this is a risk. For a wealthy, influential man to do this, to associate with a convicted criminal like Jesus, but Joseph doesn't care. So he, along with Nicodemus, wrap up Jesus' body in clean linens and place Jesus in his own tomb, a tomb that Joseph had made for his family. He's treating him like family. And we see these women followers of Jesus never abandoning Jesus for a moment. They don't even ever leave his body The religious leaders wanted to make sure Jesus' followers didn't stage a resurrection by stealing Jesus' corpse to keep the movement going, so they make sure the tomb Jesus is placed in is guarded by soldiers and a seal is put on it so that anybody who tampers with it or tries to would be killed. Jesus' disciples were doing anything but trying to steal his body in that moment. The the, the eyewitness accounts show us how depressed and frightened and confused they were. Remember, they had just experienced less than a week ago Jesus coming in the triumphal entry where crowds are cheering, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, declaring him to be the Messiah, the kingdom of God coming to earth. And then less than a week later, these same people are demanding Jesus be killed. We find the disciples uh, in confusion and fear. Try to put yourself in their shoes. Maybe sandals would be better. Think about it. As a follower of Jesus, you've left everything you've had to go on the road with him for these past three years, almost three years. You saw Jesus do incredible miracles. 
Mary Magdalene, who's among you, had bunches of evil spirits cast out of her, and she went from being crazy to sane and a beautiful, helpful person in their group of leaders with them. All of them had been transformed by Jesus' teachings. You believed in the compelling vision that Jesus gave of a world where he was bringing God's kingdom rule to reign in this earth. You started believing that God loves each and every one so much. He loves them more than the sparrows, so much so that you could start even believing that you could love your enemies. And then this happens. And the vision of the world of what they thought was going to happen gets crushed, I mean obliterated. And Jesus, who could save and heal others, apparently can't save himself. That's where they are. Watching all of this go down. Bringing back what I think a lot of us deal with, this loss, this discouragement, this hopelessness, that reality is back. This is just how life goes. Tim Mackey, the author of The Gospel Project, gives an example that I think brings clarity to this experience. He lived in Wisconsin. I grew up in Minnesota, so I can relate to this. I'm especially reminded of winter right now because our family in Minnesota just got seven inches of snow dumped on them this last week. And that cold didn't help them beat Michigan. Bummer. When winter starts in October, I mean, it really wears on your soul. I mean, mean, it's just horrible. And after several months of Minnesota winter where the temperatures stay well before below freezing by late February, there's just kind of this dreary hopelessness that kind of things are never going to change. And then you look out in your yard and you see these tiny bursts of yellow and purple springing out of the snow. Beauty in the midst of the frozen, barren, lifeless ground. Jesus' followers got the dream of life that Jesus was selling and talking about in this full of color life and now with Jesus dead, reality, harsh reality is back. That's just how the world is. Dark and dreary, cold and hopeless. What do we do now? I'm sure they're asking. I mean, just go home and what do we do? And I think that's What a lot of us feel and a lot of us do, we believe this life is hard. It's full of pain and loss. And you just find a way to cope and you find a way to get through. For many, that's what it means to be human. But as followers of Jesus, we don't need to live that way. The third implication of Jesus' death and resurrection is we can live in a vision of the world that's different than most people's reality. What we see is not fully reality. Whatever we are facing is not the end of the story. There is always hope. When we believe the resurrection, not as a pipe dream, but as God's truth, as reality, we can look at the world and the most evil tragedy in our world and we can still have hope. Why? Because Jesus, as an innocent man, died the death 
of a criminal and came back to life on our behalf. And because of that, we can believe that even on a dreary day in February in Minnesota or Ohio, there is a world of color out there of green and purple and orange and yellow and red. And we can believe that there will one day be a sunny day of 80 degrees where we're going to be able to swim and we're going to be able to lay on the warm beach and enjoy it even when all we see is cold and dark snow. Why? Because we see a crocus flower in our front yard. We see Jesus conquering death. How did Jesus' followers embrace this? Let's look at Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and, and, and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. So come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hi. I mean, that's basically what he did. That's kind of understated, right? Hi. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Matthew tries to capture their feelings in this. Both fear Enjoy. They're terrified and full of joy at the same time. Uh, the only time that I've come close to feeling that is when I held three brand new little messy human beings in my arms. Obviously, I wasn't the one giving birth, so it wasn't hard for me. And I know it happens to billions of people, but the process of having these little creatures arrive, it's intense. It's fearful. They're so fragile and so many things can go wrong. Is everything going to be okay? Am I going to be a good enough dad? Are they going to survive me? And yet there's also this pure joy of a life created that's so amazingly sacred. So back to these women at the tomb. An angel has told them that Jesus has risen from the dead. Think of the roller coaster they've been on. They've had their whole world blown away by Jesus' death, reeling, trying to rethink, how do I do life now? And Jesus steps up and says, hi. And they just fall at his feet and they worship him. And Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Go and tell the rest of the guys. Jesus completed the mission to confront evil death and defeat death and injustice. Now, the way the Jewish people thought God would bring the kind, this kind of kingdom rule looked differently than how he actually brought it. I mean, the Old Testament vision of hope and the, 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 the vision of hope that everybody had of the, as a Jew during that day looked like a glorious earthly kingdom full of peace and prosperity and victory and beautiful buildings and evil was going to be nowhere to be found and everybody was going to be following God. But God is writing a story that looks just a little bit different. And it's surprising. It showed up in a way that Jesus' followers did not have a category for. 
It's kind of like the prophets had seen summer coming, this land of milk and honey and flowers everywhere. And what actually happened was a crocus bloomed toward the end of winter where there is still snow and ice, cold darkness. And Jesus is saying, I have completed the work, but the fullness is yet to be seen. This is a foretaste of a new creation. Jesus began his ministry declaring boldly, the kingdom of God is here. God is present, active, but summer is not yet here in its fullness. So we have to rethink our world and what it means that Jesus was resurrected. This is a kind of world where selfishness and sin and injustice is still very much alive. And we get that, don't we? Yet because of the resurrection, sin and evil do not get the last word. Why did the disciples believe that? Because they saw a crocus in the front yard in the middle of winter. They saw an empty tomb in the darkest time of their life in Jerusalem. And eyewitnesses saw a mutilated, murdered man put in a tomb and then disappear only to be seen again by the, over the next month by hundreds of people seeing Jesus alive. The entire community was transformed by Jesus coming back from the dead. The reason the movement of Jesus didn't die out like so many others is because Jesus rose from the dead. In spite of this world being unjust and corrupt where people die tragically, the resurrection of Jesus is telling us that's not the end of the story. That's not the full story. And this is what's been on my heart for all of us this week that some of you have been through difficult stuff, been treated horribly. Others of you have gone through some scary health challenges and had some major personal failures. And when you think about Jesus, you think, yeah, that's a nice idea. I, I wish the world was more like what Jesus talked about, victory over death and life transformed, but I know my life. That's just not realistic. That's not my story. But God is inviting you into his story. It's his story. We've all got our stories. We've all got our wounds, our temptations, our failures. The resurrection is saying there's a different way, a different kind of hope, a greater hope than all of that. When we choose to believe that Jesus chose to take responsibility for us and for our human condition, dying on the cross to pay the price for our junk, we are saying that the evil and injustice that tries to enslave all of us does not have the last word. Jesus had victory over all, all of it. And therefore, we always have hope. We have hope for the future because Jesus paid our debt for salvation for all time, for all of eternity. And we have hope for the present because Jesus wants to meet us today and be with us and transform our lives step by step as we walk out each and every day. There is a hope for you and I. There is a hope for our community, for our nation, and for our world because Jesus 
has the last word. And that is real. So when we're tempted to not have hope, we have to look at this crocus flower, this empty tomb. I'd like for you just to, for a moment, just think of some issue in your life. Some relationship, some character flaw, some habit that you've said, I just, that's just how it is. It's never going to change. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus can boldly declare over that area that you have said, I don't think it can ever change. He can say no. That's not how it has to be. It can be different. And one day it will be different. I want you to turn that area of your life that came to mind, just turn it over to God right now and let Him speak His hope into your situation. If you're at home or if you're here, would you just join me in prayer for a moment? Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would continue to come into this room And for those things that you've helped spark in our mind where we've consistently said, I don't think that can change. I don't really have hope there. For the things that we carry burdens around saying, I just don't know how this can be any different, Lord. Would you come and would you help us see the beautiful flower in the snow that your resurrection is? Lord, today we choose right now to say, Lord, we put our trust in you. We put our hope in you. Those areas, Lord, that we feel are dead, long gone, can never be restored, can never change, Lord, we just give them to you. Because, Lord, we can't change them on our own, but we know that the one who rises from the dead, the one who has promised to resolve everything one day and has proven that he can do so, you, Lord, can do that in all of our lives. So I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us that you would stir hope in you over whatever issue it is that we're facing. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.